doing something that was familiar for our guests while introducing something new. I wanted to explore something that had a longer reach. There's a lot of great Peruvian restaurants in New York. They're all delicious, but they kind of all do the same thing. It's that, that style of food that you, that you find, you know, like the comida criolla, right? It's all kind of the same. And, and I wanted to kind of separate myself from that to be able to reach more people, you know, to kind of push the cuisine forward and, and, and give it a name in, in New York City, you know, not that it didn't have one, but really kind of elevate it and, and, and bring it to another level, you know, to make it one of the cuisines where that was always like a topic of conversation. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 78 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. My guest today is Chef Eric Ramirez from Liamain in Brooklyn and Liamasan in Manhattan. Our conversation is about Peruvian cuisine. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have conversations with awarded chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country, focusing on their path to success and how their cultural background influenced their creative process. Chef Ramirez is first-generation American. His parents are from Peru. Classically trained as a chef, he rediscovered his culinary Peruvian heritage in his late 20s. He talks about the different influences that shaped the Peruvian cuisine, his sources of inspiration, and the food concepts at Liama Inn and Liamasan. You can find the show notes of this episode and all the other episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. Hi, Chef. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast Flavors Unknown. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on, on the show. I was trying to remember when was the first time we met when you were in Raimi. I, I don't even remember what year it was, but... Like maybe like 10 years ago? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah like I think 10, 10 years, years ago, ago, yes. I had the the opportunity and the chance to taste your food, you know, there. And then, you know, Yemain, where we are today, came here several times. And then recently after the, the reopening, you know, after the pandemic, I had the chance to, uh, to go to Yemasan as well. So I'm pretty, pretty happy that, you know, I covered like all the bases <laughs> so far. You, you were able to see the, the evolution. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> How would you define Peruvian cuisine? I think there's two important factors that define Peruvian cuisine. I think one would be the cultural influences. And then secondly, would be the, the biodiversity of the country. In the cultural influences, you have the indigenous, then you have the Spanish, the African, the Chinese, the Japanese. You have some German in there, some Italian, and then the biodiversity. If you look at the country, uh, the way that it's broken down, you have coast, you have the Sierra, the Andes, you have the forest, the rainforest, and then the south is desert all these microclimates and the result of that is all these amazing ingredients so those two things coupled i think is what makes peruvian cuisine okay so c can you give us some examples of me like indigenous like yeah, ingredients so, like from those different parts of yes, so, of peru so there's a i wouldn't want to say cuisine but there's there's like specific cooking called 
Criolla, which translates to Creole, and that's the Spanish and African indigenous, right? And then you have Chifa, which is its own cuisine as well, and that's the Peruvian Chinese. And then you have what's known as Nikkei, which is the Japanese, the Japanese yeah. and Peruvian. Mm -hmm. And then you have something called Bachiche, which is the Italian Peruvian. Now, in those, in those specific cuisines, there are dishes that represent those cultural combinations. For instance, let's, it would be the beef heart anticuchos, you know, the beef heart skewers, or uh, a dessert that's very popular that you see everywhere on the streets called... Which is what? Picarones is, uh, is our version of buñuelos, right? It's a sweet potato and squash. And then there's a group of dishes that fall into that category of la comida criolla. Then you have the chief, right? Which is very similar to the Cantonese style of like Chinese food that we know here, but done in Peru by Chinese Peruvian. But one, one, like a few dishes specifically would be kamlu wantan, which is wantans uh, fried that are filled that are mixed with like pork, duck, and chicken and kind of like a sweet and sour sauce. Then you have another dish called samsi, which is like a noodle dish, you know, and then you have our arroz chaufa, which is our fried, like a fried rice dish, which is a very popular Peruvian dish that's Peruvian Chinese, which is the, the beef tenderloin stir fry. It's a stir fry with tomatoes, onions, soy sauce, and it's topped with French fries. It's like a like a frav like a favorite. And then you go to the Nikkei. So that's the one that you have featured that's, in Yamasan. Yeah, that's right? the one that we yeah. have featured in Yamasan. And then Nikkei is is the combination of Peru, Peruvian and J Japanese cultures, technique, flavor, uh, ingredients, and a good representation of that would be. So there's a traditional dish called parihuela, right? And basically, what it is, it's a seafood stew. And that falls under the criolla category. But the Japanese chefs, they've taken the parihuela and they've made it their own by adding, let's say, miso to it, by adding soy sauce to it. So then it's become a parihuela Nikkei. You know, so it's those styles of interpretations, those styles of like, you know, taking like something that, you know, was very like, like traditional at that time and kind of putting a Japanese spin on it, right? Using Japanese ingredients or Asian ingredients that were available at that time yeah. in, in Peru. Or Japanese techniques, I guess. Yeah, well, if we talk about the ceviche and the tiradito yeah. specifically, mm -hmm. when the Japanese arrived, they taught us then how to properly handle fish, how to properly cut fish, you know. So the tiradito comes from, from the Japanese. Tiradito is, is like a ceviche, but in the style of sashimi. So you will have like two kinds of ceviches then, then yeah, uh, so in you, Peru? Then? Yeah, so you have ceviche, which is cut in cubes, right? And then you have tiradito, which is sliced, like sashimi. Yeah, those are the two differences. The difference is only about like the way the fish is cut, or is it as well like about the marinade, you know, for the ceviche? It's, it's mainly the way the fish is cut. Okay. Yeah, ceviche and tiradito is mainly the way that the fish is cut. It's also like the way it's presented as well. Okay. Because I, I was reading somewhere that maybe before there was like, uh, it was left like longer in the juice. In, in the yeah, juice. And cook, with the Japanese, yeah, it, was it was like, 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 preservation. like faster. Yeah. Yeah, and then the Japanese came and we served it more on the raw side than, than actually letting it marinate and pickle in the actual like acid. And then you have the, the bachicha, which is the Italian and uh, Peruvian. And a very popular dish would be apanado con tallarines verdes, which is basically a milanesa with spaghetti and pesto sauce. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is a very popular, also known kind of like comida criolla, but... It's definitely, you can definitely see the Italian influence there. And so what are, what are like the, the specific ingredients from Peru then on, on this dish? Or oh, it's like the really, specific yeah. ingredients? 
I don't I don't think there's specific ingredients in there, right? I think what makes it more Peruvian is that it's served with huancaina sauce, which is like a sauce made from ají amarillo, cheese, evaporated milk, crackers. So thinking about, so, you know, all those influences, would you say that uh, do you think that uh, history um, is a fundamental part of understanding, Absolutely. you know, uh, a food or a recipe? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think in Peruvian cuisine particularly, I think you need to know where, where it stems from, where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Right? I think the history and the cuisine go hand to hand. Yeah, with the different waves of immigration, I yeah, guess. Yeah, absolutely, and- yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the food was one way at one point and evolved to something else with this immigration of, of these different cultures, right? And then it continued because you would have the immigration from let's say the people from Japan and then integrating with Peruvian customs and integrating with Peruvian people. Mm -hmm. And then that was like the second wave of what Nikkei was, you know? So, you know, it's history plays a very important part in in, in the cuisine. Yeah. And then yourself, you are now bringing that here, you know, in Brooklyn or in Manhattan. And I'm guessing that you are tweaking it as well. Yeah. It's another, it's another perspective, right? It's 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 looking at it through a New York lens. You know, it's, it's not Nikkei in the traditional sense. Right, it's Nikkei on how we see it here in New York because we also want to utilize the seasons here. We also want to utilize the ingredients here. You know, Nikkei's slightly a little easier because there's a lot of Japanese ingredients available here, but it still makes it different, difficult on the Peruvian side of it because we can't get that many great, not like how it is in Peru, but we can't get that many Peruvian ingredients here that are fresh. A lot of it comes frozen or dried, so we need to make do with what we have. You know, that's why we introduce the New York element to it, right? So it's a little bit more broad. You know, also like, you know, we have a lot of talent and people have worked in different cuisines and have learned different things. So we don't want to, you know, we want to be able to to kind of express ourselves in that way too, you know? So we come back to, you know, to that aspect because that's some, something that really interests me and, and people listening to the, to the podcast. But going back to uh, your roots, so what are like the, um, your favorite Peruvian food to eat that you, you, you were growing up? One would have to be Lomo Saltado. That was an absolute favorite of mine. I so would, can you uh, describe it again? Yeah. So Lomo Saltado is uh, it's a stir fry. This is the, the Chinese influence. It's a stir fry with beef and it's beef, onions, tomato, cilantro. It's a soy sauce based sauce. And then you top it with French fries and you serve it with white rice on the side. Absolute favorite of mine. Like my mom would cook a lot at home, but on the weekends we'd kind of go out to eat dinner at like 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 a like a family friend's restaurant. Yeah, and uh, I would always order that. Okay, you so know. the fries are top, like on yeah, on the top. fries are on top. Okay, yeah. and you have rice on the on you the have side. Yeah, rice on the side. Carb on carb. Carb on yeah. carb. Yeah, carb on. Yeah, I mean we're known for our potatoes. We have over three thousand sure. varieties of potatoes. Oh wow. Okay. And, uh, we eat everything with rice. So what compelled you to become a, a chef and, and focus on, on Peru and cuisine after? Because I'm guessing like, like a lot of people coming from, you know, originally a different country or the parents come from a different country, so first generation and so on, you probably didn't start with the cuisine from the country of your family, correct? Yeah, you, I mean, and, that's all. And that's, you, that's you all will rediscover those roots later. Yeah, so my parents migrated here from Peru, first generation American, and that's all, that's all I really knew as a child. But what compelled me to do Peruvian cuisine, I would regularly visit Peru with my family, mm-hmm. visit my cousins, my yeah. grandmothers, uh, my grandmothers, my grandparents. And we would spend, you know, like 
the summer there and stuff like that. And um, there was a there was a big break in that. Like I think the last time I went was maybe like sixteen or seventeen, and then there was a a pretty big break. And after that, I returned in my my in my like in my late twenties. I think I was twenty eight. And that trip there, I went with a different, you know, I went with a different mindset. You know, it was more, it was more career driven. It was more, more to see the culinary scene and what they were doing. It wasn't to go visit family, you know. So when, when I, when I saw what they were doing, I was blown away because I knew Peruvian food, but I only knew it from my childhood, right? And I only knew certain dishes that, that I like or that my mom would make really didn't have an understanding of of all the of all the cultural influences really didn't have an understanding of all the ingredients until I went when I was 28 and I was actually like searching for those things you know and and learning while I was eating at different restaurants and going to different markets and I was just blown away by that and I I thought it was fascinating like I always looked at Peruvian food as like the food that I grew up eating you know like the homey style food and I never never looked at it as like food that I wanted to cook professionally until I went and uh, I saw what the chefs were doing at at that time, you know they were they weren't they were cooking how you would cook here in New York in the states, but using Peruvian ingredients, right? So you know that that right there was very appealing to me. You know, I was like, well, we can cook like that here, but use Peruvian ingredients too, right? And then kind of do our own spin on it. That's kind of what what threw me in there. Yeah, for the first ten years of my career, I cooked French American style cuisine, like fine dining and stuff like that. And then um, I was working at a restaurant called Nuella as a chef de cuisine. And the restaurant was open for two years and we were going to close it. And that was like kind of my first jump into like the whole Nuevo Latino cuisine. It was a good experience. You know, I met a lot of great people. I got to work with my, my chef at the time, Adam Shop, who was, you know, like a, a good friend of mine. And But the restaurant didn't do that well. And the owners decided to reopen as a Peruvian restaurant. We had a lot of conversations and they were like, like, you, you got to do this. You're proving it's in your blood, you know, like do it, you know? And he said something, Armin Torres, the owner, he said something he's like, it's not what you want to do. It's, it's, uh, well, it is what I want to do, but it's like, it's sometimes it's what, it's what's expected of you, right? Like, and he used this Colombian artist as an example. And I forgot his name, but he said, cause he, I guess he knew him back then. He said that he wanted to be like a, like a rock star, you know, like you want to do like rock and roll, but, but, his music didn't take like people didn't didn't like it and then he kind of did like a commercial or something doing bayoneta i think it's called like the like the colombian style music and like people really were like wow what is this who is this guy you know and then he kind of stuck with that and he was kind of legitimate because of who he was and yeah exactly so he was like he gave that so. as an example he's like look i know you want to do like fine dining and this and that but you're peruvian like you got to give this a shot it's in your blood like it you know like this is who you are sure. and i was like all right well Let's do it. I mean, I was really close to like moving to San Francisco and not starting to cook over there and like being like, you know what, fuck this, I'm not going to do this anymore. But he just kept going at it and I was just like, all right, let's do it. So then that's when I took the trip to Peru. And that's when everything was like, like mind blown, eye opening. And I came back super inspired and I was like, let's do it. And then that's where how I met my really good friend, Jaime Pisake, who kind of helped me with the menu here at Raimi. You know, we worked together and, and I learned a lot from him, you know, and, and it was... And this is where you uh, took me to your kitchen and make me discover like Lukuma, yeah. Lukuma and, you know, other ingredients that you had. Yeah, so uh, I had was, a great experience there. Yeah, Ryan was day. like the first stepping stone for, for that, you know, for the, for the beginning of my, of my Peruvian 
cuisine career. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> and then, so in 2015, you created Yama in, Lama in, yeah. Yama in here in, Yama, uh, Yama in, in Brooklyn. Yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about the, the concepts of Yama in? So, so Rami was, was more traditional, right? We did more traditional things. Yama in was the next chapter, right? It was the next step above that. It was trying to do what I experienced in Peru at that time here, right? I wanted to create something that allowed me to use the seasons in New York, allowed me to use the ingredients. It gave me more, more of a, of a culinary playing field, made it a lot broader. Using my, my chefs and myself's past experiences and being able to implement that on the menu, not, not being pigeonholed by just a specific, you know, very like specific cuisine, which is if we went just like comida criolla or very specific Peruvian, you know, it, the possibilities would sure. have been limited. Limited, yeah. yeah. And at the same time, like doing something that was familiar, you know, for our guests while introducing something new, you know, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to explore something that had a longer reach. There's a lot of great Peruvian restaurants in New York. And they're all they're all delicious, but but they kind of all do the same thing. That style of food that you that you find, you know, like the comida criolla, right? it's all kind of the same. And and I wanted to kind of separate myself from that to be able to reach more people, you know, to kind of push the cuisine forward and give it a name in in New York City, you know. Not that it didn't have one, but really kind of elevate it and and, and bring it to another level, you know, to. To make it one of the cuisines where that was always like a topic of conversation, you know, like, oh, let's go eat Chinese or Japanese or American or Peruvian, you know, like, you know, give it, give it some clout, give it some, not that it didn't have respect, but, but put it up there with like, with the other restaurants that people love, you know. How did you blend, you know, traditional aspects of Peruvian cuisine and the spin that you wanted to, you know, to give to it? So can you give us an example? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, for instance... I mean, there were some dishes on here that were traditional and we didn't mess with, you know, and there were some dishes that we took the idea of what the dish was and kind of put our own spin on it. And then there were some dishes that were mainly ingredient based, right? So, for example, a traditional dish that we did our own spin on, it would, would probably be our the lomo saltado, the beef tenderloin stir fry. So, traditionally, you get it served with a side of rice and the french fries on top and it's like a whole plate. The way that we did it here is we did it in a large, in a large format. Two to three people would be able to eat it and it was served in a large skillet top of the french fries and on the side, we served a Chinese-style crepes or Chinese, Chinese pancakes, avocado, pickled chilies, and a little bottle of rocoto crema, right? So, you kind of made your own taco, right? And that's... I feel like that's something very familiar here, right? Sure. People love tacos. Absolutely. Right? So, to kind of introduce something like that, you know, where people can be like, oh, there's like a taco and connection can, to it. They can play with the food yeah, too. Yeah, they can do interact yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, and it's, yeah. yeah, you know, so it makes it... So, that was like our version of that. And then like once people were close to being done and there's we put a lot of sauce there intentionally because I feel like the sauce is the best part. We would come later and then throw a bowl of rice over it and then our server would mix it and you eat it like that with rice. So, that was like a playful, playful version of that. One dish that's ingredient-driven would be our quinoa salad, which is still on the menu. Peru is the largest producer yep. of quinoa, yep. and it comes from the Altiplano. And so we 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 use that ingredient specifically, and, and we have a quinoa salad that's quinoa, bacon, banana, avocado, and cashews. Cashews, I think Peru is the second largest country that produces cashews. I think I think Brazil is, is one. So that's all like a very ingredient kind of do you use the dish. Do you use the juice as well from the, the cashew nuts or no, no, it's just the toasted cashews mixed. So it's a two-component uh, salad. There we okay. go. <laughs> so the fine. base is like a creamy 
salad that's uh, made with banana mayo, cashews, avocado, tomatoes, bacon. And then there was more of like uh, like the acidic salad version, like top part of it, which is like, oh, it was like a quinoa tabbouleh. White quinoa, crispy red quinoa, red onion, herbs, and like an apple cider vinaigrette. So if you had to select like one flavor that best represents Yamain. One flavor? We, yeah. Oh, man, that's, that's too hard. There's that's too many too flavors. Hard. Too many flavors. Yeah, there's too many flavors in Peruvian cuisine. Like, I think not one flavor specifically, but maybe an ingredient that introduced a lot of flavor into our food would probably be the ajis, all okay, the peppers. Sure, the peppers. Yeah. Yeah. If it's one flavor or one ingredient, it would it would probably be that because that is sprinkled. Yeah, yeah, that is sprinkled throughout our whole menu. Okay, and that is the base of our cooking. So let's talk about Yamasan now in in Manhattan. So it's based on like the Nikkei, Nikkei yeah. like cuisine, Peruvian so Japanese, Peruvian yeah. Japanese. So what's the process that you are using, like combining? you know, those flavors of, you know, Japan or techniques of Japan and, and Peruvian, you know, flavors or ingredients? Right, the process. So, I mean, a lot of reading, a lot of research. There aren't that many Nikkei restaurants in New York. Or, I mean, there aren't that many Nikkei restaurants in the United States. I mean, you're starting to slowly see more of them. So, to have like a reference or like a place that you can go eat and get ideas, it's it's a little, it's it's tough. It's difficult, right? So, our process would be it would start with the concept, right? We would, we would think of a dish. We would, we would find a dish or something that we want to explore, right? May it be a Nikkei dish or maybe a Peruvian dish or may it be a, a Japanese dish. We'll take that dish and, and, and we'll talk about it and, and we'll try to dissect it, right? And we'll try to introduce, let, let, let it be a Japanese dish. How do we connect it? How do we connect that dish to Peru and to New York? Same with the Peruvian dish. How do we connect it to Japan? And to New York, or if it's a Nikkei dish, how do we like? How do we do our? How do we do a spin on that Nikkei dish? That would be the process, you know. It would, it would start with an ingredient or a concept, a dish, or even a technique, right? And how do we how do we bring it all together, you know, to something that represents what we do? If there's an an example that you can take from the, the menu, the at the moment. I mean, our ceviches, right? Our ceviches aren't necessarily Nikkei style ceviches. But they're Nikkei in the sense of the ingredients that we use and the technique that we apply to the fish, right? For example, our mackerel, right? Our mackerel is, we have a mackerel with ponzu. Well, it's no longer in the menu, but this, this dish, I think, is a good example. I think they all are, but this dish specifically. Um, the mackerel, we had it in a ponzu leche de tigre, right? Leche de tigre is our, is our base for what we use for all our ceviches, and we mix it with ponzu, which is a Japanese dipping sauce. We make our own ponzu, and... And that's the marriage of, of the Nikkei, right? That's the marriage of the Ponzu and the, and the, sorry, that's the marriage of the Peruvian and the Japanese, the Ponzu and the Leche de Tigre. The way we handle our mackerel is we slightly, we lightly cure it and then we grill the, the skin with the, with the binchotan charcoal. The, the curing gives it the flesh a little firm and it seasoned it, 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 it makes the flesh slightly firm and it gives it a, a little seasoning. And, and the charring of the skin adds another element, another level of flavor. It gives a nice, like, char flavor, you know? And then we use citrus, right? The citrus, we used it in winter when it was, when it was in season, right? And it was not local, but, you know, it was citrus that was in season and, and we used different varieties of them, you know? And, and we used that in a specific, like, time, you know, season, right? So that element of New York came into play. And then olive oil. You know, olive oil because we thought it was delicious together and that's an Italian influence and we finished it with olive oil. And then like, like, uh, 
Sancho pepper, like toasted Sancho peppercorns, right? So that dish kind of embodies a little, like a little bit of everything that, that we represent, you know? So you're talking about the citrus for the winter. So that means that you have a different variation of that recipe for other seasons with. Yeah. Like right now we're doing it with tuna and the first of the season heirloom tomato. What about like the, um, another dish that you have on the, and I, I want to make sure that I say it correctly, but it's like you have a katsu, correct? Katsu is actually a version of the apanado con tallarines verdes. Right, which is the Milanese with spaghetti and pesto, right? But our version is the katsu, right? So the katsu plays as the Milanese. We use Iberico pork that we wet age for five to seven days in, in, a, in a mixture of dashi, mirin, and soy. And then we bread it and fry it like katsu style. And then on the side, we do uran, uran noodles served in that, that pesto. I had that dish. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's good. It's yeah. the katsu with the udon and the pesto. And then we serve the traditional ingredients, which is the sukum, the, the pickled cucumbers and the katsu sauce. Right. So that's, that's a, that's a playful dish. Like if people understood Peruvian cuisine and knew the tayarines, like that traditional dish that we did a spin on, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's, it's amusing. It's like funny. It's like, yeah, you know, because you, you almost like, brought like the Italian components on yeah, that one. So too, you're just so. like, that's kind of weird, but when yeah. you eat it, it's like, it's pretty delicious. Uh, yeah, it is. You know, like, I don't know why I have like this idea that they, they had another version with duck or no, I don't no, know. It was the, the duck nigiri. Oh, okay. Which is, which is a play on a traditional dish called arroz con pato, which is like duck with rice, yeah. with like a cilantro-based rice, but we turned it into a nigiri. So we cook sushi rice. I think if Japanese chefs saw how we cook sushi rice sometimes, they'd probably be like, well, this is not <laughs> the way it's supposed to be done. But the way we do it is the process and technique is the same, but we cook it in cilantro water. We do like a, like a base of sofrito, which is garlic, onion, and, and then we add cilantro water to it we add chicha de jora which is a fermented corn beer so the rice comes out kind of green so then when we pull it out we let it cool instead of adding su to it we add uh, we add a mixture of, of like cilantro and like chicha de jora that's slightly seasoned and seasoned with a little vinegar and we mix that into the rice so it's a very unconventional way of preparing sushi rice and then we top it with uh, a little cilantro mayo fried banana an aged duck breast right that we slice and we kind of treat like if it was a piece of fish, right? And then we put a nasturtium leaf over it for a little pepperiness. And, and the nasturtium leaf is like the vehicle to, to kind of fold the leaf over and to be able to grab the nigiri and eat it, right? So it's like, it's, it's a nigiri, right? But with Peruvian flavor, you know? That's the one which is really beautiful and the nasturtium is on top of it, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I had that one too. Let's talk a little bit about the um, period that we are just like hopefully coming out of now, which is, you know, the pandemic. So how did you guys, you know, survive like during the, the pandemic and what specific uh, initiatives did you come up with for the business and as well probably for, for your staff? It's been a hell of a year and a half. It's a lot of ups and downs. It's been, you know, stressful. Did you ask to close? At the beginning, we I did. guess. We yeah. closed. So when March hit and everything started rolling out, we closed both locations and we closed them for a period of time to kind of figure out what we were going to do. We started a fundraiser for our staff. We raised a good chunk of change. What we did is we offered our services, you know, like for instance, my chef de cuisine here was going to teach a, a semi-fredo class. I was going to teach a ceviche class. My partner was going to teach how to start a business class, you know, like... So we all kind of chipped in and offered our services and a lot of people took to it and 
and then we raised a good chunk. And then what we did with that money is we 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 split it up between our coworkers who couldn't collect them. We also started a little pantry. We would we would donate a portion of our delivery to our pantry where we would purchase food, and that uh, we can have our 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 coworkers come once a week to pick up you know like like bags of food like not prepared but more like dry food you know like a pasta and stuff like that and then we opened and we tried to figure out how to kind of you know employ the people that needed it more yeah and then and then the luckily the the ppps rolled out and those were extremely helpful we built the patio area outside for llama inn and same for llama san you know and and then we just try to keep every like we try to employ as many people as we could you know? Are you going to continue some of those initiatives now, like maybe like the classes or no? No, I think I think now is focusing on the businesses, trying to to build the business up to where we were before, so we can keep all these people employed, you know, and just you know keep our core, keep keep our employees with with jobs, man. That's at least for the ones that want to work because it's been hard to get staff. I know. Hopefully, Everywhere. come September, things change. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. And then, like we're, you know, we're we want to we want to grow. We know we were on this trajectory of, of growth and expansion before COVID hit. So uh, yeah, because you wanted to continue to expand, you know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. And with that comes a lot of opportunity. You know, with growth opens a lot of doors for our for our, for our coworkers, for our employees. Sure, so, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Anything that you can share with us, or it's too early. It's a little too early. I mean, we recently went to Miami to look at some locations. So my partner and I are going to Chicago this week on, on Wednesday to look at okay. some locations. So it's expanding outside of yeah. the New York area. Yeah, I don't know. New York is difficult to operate in. You know, like it's it's hard. I think there's other markets and any opportunity in a fast casual with the concept of Yamaha, or or I that's mean, not where you want to go. No, I mean that's that's something I would definitely explore. You know, we we opened Yamita in the West Village mm -hmm. was our yeah. fast casual, yeah. and because of COVID and and location, it it just didn't do as well as we thought, and we thought it was going to do pretty good. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I thought the product we were putting out was was pretty delicious. It was it was like rotisserie chicken and sandwiches, but it just didn't. I don't know. It just didn't take. You know, so that's something I'd like to explore again. You know, we did get an offer in Austin for like a licensing agreement okay. for Yamita, mm -hmm. but let's see how that turns out. I don't know if. If the economics work in our favor, then it might be something willing to explore. But yeah, okay. So let, let's talk about your your creative process. So you already covered quite a bit, but you were mentioning as well that you are leveraging like the experience, you know, from the different people working in the kitchen, Absolutely. you know, and so on. So I'm guessing that your approach is a collaborative, you know, it approach. Is. So it can is. you, can you share a little bit with us, you it know, is. how would you approach like, the creation you know, of a dish on the menu? Yeah. So, you know, like you get to like, when you first start off, right, it's like you're creating everything, right? And then you kind of start working with people. They start noticing their talent and you start kind of like seeing like if they're creative or not, or they're more like operationally strong, you know, like, Right. Like, for instance, here, Natalie and Meryl, who run the kitchen. Meryl's our chef de cuisine, and Natalie is basically his right hand, you know, and, and they both do an amazing job. And they're the creative force, you know, like, well, we will talk about a dish and I will give an idea. And then there's, there's like guidelines to kind of, you know, stick, stick to, but, you know, they'll make it, they'll present it and we'll taste it and we'll make certain adjustments. And, and then that's how it gets on the menu. And, and, you know, we always need to think about flavor, presentation, connection. You know, the dish needs to be connected to what we do. It needs to be connected to the culture, right? Technique. So, will they have the chance to go to Peru? 
I like I, I've I've brought Meryl to Peru. Yeah. yeah, I've taken him to Peru. I'd like to take Natalie at some point. You know, but I need to. It's when the and things in Peru right now are kind of a little difficult. So, but at some point, yeah, totally. Yeah. Same same with the guys at Lamasan. You know, do you think that you are? How would you say your creative process like evolved over the years? How has it evolved over the years? I mean, does it come like, does it get easier or more difficult? I think it gets more difficult, man. Sometimes I struggle. Yeah. Because I don't know, like, like honestly, Lama income is a little easier for me to create for. Lama san is, 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 it's difficult because there's a, there's the element of the Japanese, you know, there's the element of an EK and, and like my grandmother's an EK. Okay. But it's not a cuisine that I was exposed to a yeah, lot, right? So they have more research for you. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, it's not like a, like, yeah, there's a lot of Japanese restaurants, but it's not an EK. Mm. You know, so it's like you can get ideas from there, but there's not like your resources are a little limited, right? I mean, ingredients are available in the Japanese in the in the, the Japanese element of it, but you know, it's like for me, it's a little it it's it's creativity wise, it's a little more difficult, yeah. And I mean, obviously, flavors are important. It's one of the elements that you mentioned first, and then there's all those you know twists and and creative aspect, but. How would you rank creativity versus techniques? Creativity would come first before technique. I think concept stems from, from creative. You know, you're brainstorming, you're talking to your chefs, and, and you're basically creating something, right? You're creating a concept, right? Or you're creating an idea, right? And, and that's, that's, the create, that's, the, that's the creative element of it, right? So, so I think that comes first. And then, and then we apply it. And then when we apply it to what we... like. To cooking, then we introduce technique to it, you know, and I think it's always important to have an element of like you approach, we approach cooking and we approach it, you know, in a, in a technical way, right? Like whatever we do, we want to try to do it the best that we can, you know, and, and we, 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 we apply technique to it, but, but sometimes it's just basic, you know, there's just like, for instance, just from like, you know, making a, a really simple sauce, you know, but we always try to find an element of, of technique that's interesting. So, you know, the cook's are always constantly learning as well. You know, I think creativity comes before technique. Okay. You know? And talking about the technique, so you, you, you were trained as, uh, you know, French, I guess, with yeah, French, yeah. Cuisine, French cuisine. Did you discover, you know, in, from Peru and from your trips over there, new, like different techniques yeah, that, cook. that were on top of classics i would yeah, say yeah something one of the first things i noticed when i was starting to cook and i noticed how they cook in, in Peru, like you know when 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 we make like in a french kitchen let's say you're making a sauce or something you kind of lightly simmer it right you kind of treat it delicately over there they let it boil you know and they're 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 creating another level of flavor you know they're just boiling it and everything's kind of emulsifying into it and for me at first i was like well that's that's not how i kind of learned over here but i understand why they're doing it and i see the depth of flavor that it produces you know and that was one for sure that was kind of like that shouldn't be boiling like <laughs> put it on a simmer skim it you know keep yeah, it yeah, yeah. there's certain things that apply to cuisines to make it what it is you know plus I, I'm, I'm guessing as well that in Peru, there's a lot of like very flavorful ingredients, the haggis that you, you, you know, that you were mentioning that, that are not in, you know, in the French cuisine. So I, you need to probably approach them and treat them a different way. We boil them and then we puree them. Yeah. And then we add them to our, what we call sofrito, right? Which is a combination of onion and garlic and some ahi, some type of ahi, yeah. 
So I, I ask that question to all the people I have on the podcast is to share like a, a recipe guideline, you know, home cooks, foodies, you know, that then creates maybe we can take a ceviche and maybe do it like Eric Ramirez style. So what unique spin would you suggest, you know, people to make? So if they were going to make a ceviche at home, I would tell them to keep it very simple, right? First, they need to understand the process and how it works. And then I would obviously have them buy the freshest fish, right? They would need the best, the best fish to produce a good product. And then there's, there's many different ways of making ceviche, right? There's the way where you kind of just add a little lime juice to it. You know, and just kind of let it sit there for a little bit. And then what some chefs do is they'll put an ice cube in it to kind of dilute it a little bit, you know, and then just season it with salt. And then I'll have uh, red onions, ají. You can use habanero and cilantro. It's like very basic ceviche. And then there's ones that what we call leche de tigre, where we make that ahead of time, which is a combination of like lime. It's a little more elaborate. You have lime juice, you have fish stock, fish scrap. Onion, celery, garlic, ginger, ahi, cilantro stems, all pureed in the blender. And then you strain it and then you add ice to that. And the ice dilutes it a little bit. It opens it up. If you're adding like ice to like a scotch whiskey or a cognac, you know, to kind of dilute to, to be able to taste it better. Same concept, you know, you're kind of diluting it so it's not so acidic and sharp and you're cooling it down. You're kind of opening up. So there's like, there's two different approaches, right? I would suggest. The first approach. That's kind of the most easiest way of doing yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of cube your fish. You know, All scallops. I, I put scallops. You can in use scallops. Yeah. 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 You can you can cut them whichever way you want. I I I preferably like my 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 chunks bigger. Like I want you to be able to bite it. You know, get a good bite of it. And then what you can do is you add a little salt to it, and you let that sit a little bit. And what that's going to do, it's going to extract some of the moisture, and then hopefully there's a little like liquid that comes out from the fish, right? And then you squeeze a little lime over it right and then you can put like an ice cube some salt we put a ginomoto which i don't know if people <laughs> want to use that or not but sure but uh, i think that's a very important ingredient to it's a very very important ingredient for ceviche kind of rounds it out for who's ever had ceviche most likely 100 like it you've had msg in it yeah you know? yeah, yeah, just, yeah 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 it's just it's just one of those things you okay. know you use a uh, soy sauce in there or no, no never a little salt okay. i mean depends on the on the ceviche sure right? this is more of like a classical okay straightforward very simple a little ice and then now what you can do you know what i've done in the past is you make a puree of vegetables right you take onion garlic ginger celery and some cilantro stems right you put some salt over it, let it sit for a little bit somewhere warm it's going to leach out all its juice and then you puree that and then you add a little bit of that to your ceviche so right you're adding that 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 vegetable puree to your ceviche where there is your fish that's lightly cured your lime juice and ice cube and then you add a little bit of that and then you kind of stir it you know and you kind of adjust the seasoning a little salt taste where it's at. Once it's at the point where you like it, then you add your shaved red onions or your thinly sliced red onions that were shocked in ice water. Very important to shock them in ice water. They come out nice and crunchy and it's it softens the, the onion flavor and some chopped cilantro. So what kind of fish do you use usually? I like white fish, you know, like a, like a snapper or like a fluke, preferably like a, like a nice white lean. Thank you, Chef. I'm looking at the time and I, I want to finish like the, our conversation with a series of rapid fire questions, mm -hmm. if you're okay with that. Yeah, of course. 
Okay, so you and I are going in a testing tour in, let's say, in Brooklyn. So what are like the five spots that you will take me to? In Brooklyn? Yeah. I know that you have young kids, so uh, you probably don't go out to eat as often as... Yeah, not as, <laughs> not as much as I used yeah. to, but I have a friend that has a restaurant up here called the Mazza Cafe. It's a nice little Italian place. I like that restaurant a lot. I would probably take you there. I think his pastas are delicious. Carmenta's, I think they, have, they make really good sandwiches in Bushwick. My wife loves Miss Ada, which is like a Mediter- like a Middle East, not Middle Eastern, but kind of like an Israeli spot. It's pretty good. Oh, Colonia Verde, I think is a great place. We were just We were just there yesterday. Oh, you know what? Our friend's place, Cafe Kalachi. That's a, it's a little coffee place that has kalachis where are kind of like, kind of like stuffed pastries. Okay. Like a stuffed bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, yeah, pretty good. That's yeah. good. Okay. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Ice cream. Ice cream. Okay. Which flavor now? I have to ask you. Which flavor? I love chocolate. So chocolate. Anything chocolate. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Ice cream, guilty pleasure. I mean, we eat pretty healthy. It's funny. My, my wife is like, she's a vegan kind mm-hmm, of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we cook a lot of plant-based at home. Actually, that's all we cook at home is plant-based. She cooks plant-based at home. So my kids basically are like vegetarians. We only eat meat when we kind of go out. To- so we eat pretty healthy, but I guess like my guilty pleasure when, when I'm like, I want to like eat something, it would probably be pizza. I love pizza. And then sweets. I have a big, big sweet tooth. So does so does my little one. Okay. Yeah. So. So you need to finish your meal with uh, something always, sweet. Always. Always. Always need to finish my meal with, with a dessert. Okay. Know? I mean, we do our own desserts here. We don't mm-hmm. have like a pastry department, so like me and the chefs do desserts. So it's always, you always got to see the whole the whole experience from front to fin- uh, front from start to finish. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career. That's an easy one. So, three cookbooks that inspired me the most. So I love this book called Eden Punto Pe. What I found fascinating about that book is broken down to 21 ingredients called 21 Revelaciones, uh, 21 Revelations. And, and you have 21 of the best chefs in the world producing a dish with the oh, ingredient, wow. which I thought was amazing to see that. And so that's, that's a book that I, that I, that I love a lot. Uh, a book for reference I use, it's a 500 Years of, of Fusion, it's called. It's by Gaston Ocurio. I think that's a great book. And then I think, you know, like one of the first cookbooks as like a cook that I guess every chef wanted was the French Laundry Cookbook, right? I think that's, that was like a good introduction for me into the world of cookbooks, you know? Yeah. And any plan to have your own cookbook? It's in the works. I just got to, it's, I've been thinking about it a lot. A lot of people have been like, hey, you got to write a cookbook, you know, I've had some like literary agents like approach me to do it. I just I just need to feel like I'm in a place that I can focus on that and not have like a million things going on in my life. It's like two years of your life. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, so it's like I want to, but there's just too much going on right now. I don't know if I can handle it. What's the biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? I think my biggest one is the way sometimes cooks taste things. Right. Obviously like you have to taste everything that you put out. Right. But, but a pet peeve of mine is when I see a cook kind of just like dip the tip of the spoon in it and taste it like, like a little, little taste. I always tell them to taste it in the way that the guest is eating it. Right. Really put the spoon in there and get a bite of it and like eat it. And I think that's very important because the way they're tasting it is not the way that the guest is going to taste it. Right. So that's probably my biggest pet peeve. And then cleanliness. You got to work clean. Right. And it's cleanliness, organization, you know, manage your time properly. Like, don't be a mess. Work clean. <laughs> yeah. 
especially in open kitchen. Last one. So beside the classics, when it comes to condiments, sauces, spices, what do you like to have at, uh, on hand at home? You know, I've become a really big fan of the of the veganese. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I don't know. We put that on everything. It's really good. Obviously, some type of ají. You know, like maybe like an ají amarillo, like a like a spicy like ají amarillo condiment, or we always have sriracha on hand. My wife loves to use a lot of miso, so we always have miso on hand. Oh, we <laughs> different varieties of of nut milks. We both drink coffee, but she has like her own co concoction of like a mixture of like cashew milk, cashew milk yeah, with a little oat. bit <laughs> with a little bit of oat milk, yeah. you know, and then to kind of like and it's like two two brands of oat milk that she likes specifically mm -hmm. that go mixed with the cashew milk for the coffee for the coffee. So we have like and she she use it as a like a almost like a foam or yeah she, yeah, yeah, yeah like a foam. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. have like four different. Varieties of nut milks in the refrigerator. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, there, Chef. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that uh, you know you gave us uh, so much of your time for you know the discussion. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening today. I have learned a lot about Peruvian cuisine and the various influences that made what Peruvian cuisine is today and its new evolution with what Chef Eric Ramirez is doing at Liamain and Yamasan in New York City. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend, and don't forget to follow us wherever you are listening your podcast on. Please follow us at Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. My guest next week will be the forager chef Alan Bergo. We will talk, obviously, about foraging and his brand new book, Flora. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.